The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. You will turn with me to the book of First John, the concluding verses of First John in chapter 5, looking at this theme of being kept by God in an evil world. First John 5, reading verses 18 to 21, the concluding words, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let us give heed to God's word. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. In recent days and weeks, it's been a regular scene on our TVs, people heading to shelters to find safety in the storm, from the floods of Harvey to the power of Irma, people finding refuge. Schools, sports arenas, convention centers, anything that is strong and big and on high ground will do for a shelter. One of the great and comforting truths of Scripture is that God keeps his people. God shelters his people. Jesus states it this way in John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We as believers persevere in faith. We continue to believe in Jesus Christ, to hold to Jesus, to confess Christ as Lord, to walk with him throughout our lives. And we do that because God, through the work of Jesus Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit, preserves us. He keeps us to the end. He is our faithful and secure Shelter. Well, here in these concluding verses of 1 John, we find this theme of God's keeping his people in an evil world. John has written this letter to help Christians to be strengthened in their assurance. Just a few verses before the ones we read in verse 13, we see the theme verse of the whole epistle. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Life. Believers often struggle with assurance. Sometimes, because of suffering and hardship, they may wonder Is God really for me in Jesus Christ, as the Word of God says? If He is with me and for me, why is my life so hard? It almost seems that God has forsaken me. Those are common struggles. Christians can also struggle because of temptation and sin. 
They may think, how can I claim to be a Christian when sin often seems to have the upper hand in my life? Sometimes the truths of assurance are dim to us simply because they are spiritually discerned. We are dealing with unseen realities that we must grasp by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. It really should not surprise us that it is common for Christians to wrestle with doubts and discouragements because Scripture tells us that we are engaged in a fight of faith. We are in a pilgrim journey in this life. But here in our passage, the apostle gives us three certitudes, we might say, three things we know, each introduced in verses 18, 19, and 20 with the words, and we know. The first is Jesus keeps us in our battle with sin and Satan, verse 18. Secondly, we're going to see Jesus keeps us in our battle with the world and Satan, verse 19. And then Jesus keeps us by the work he has done and our union with him, verse 20. And then our fourth point will be a word of application. God, God's keeping power motivates us to press on. Well, first of all then, verse 18, Jesus Christ keeps us in our battle with sin and Satan. And we'll notice that the first point is the battle with sin and Satan. The second point is the battle with the world and Satan, because both these verses speak of the evil one. First John is a letter on assurance that could be summed up as the three marks of the Christian, or three tests of life, as it's been called. And they are these three things. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God? That's one evidence, that you confess Jesus as Lord. The doctrinal test, we would say. And then the second is, do you show evidence of a changed life? Is there the image of God being implanted in your heart, the test of righteousness or holiness? And then finally, the test of love, especially the foremost mark of a changed life. Do you love others? Those are the three themes of First John, doctrine, righteousness, love. And John s- circles back and forth on these again and again. If you read through First John, you'll see it. But sometimes John speaks about this matter of righteousness of, as we have it in verse 18, not does the one born of God does not keep on sinning. And he uses pretty absolute terms, it would seem. And it confuses Christians because they think, well, I still sin. What does that mean? Do I, am I not saved? But we know from elsewhere in 1 John that John isn't talking about sinlessness. He's not talking about sinless perfection. He's talking about a new life, a radical change that shows up in our lives. As James would say, faith without works is dead. There's evidence. In fact, if we turn back to chapter 1, where the first time that we encounter this theme, we find in chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, a very balanced description of the fact that Christians still sin, but their orientation is radically changed. In verse 6, John says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if you confess Christ, or you say you confess Christ, but you're walking in darkness, there's no reorientation of your life, you're lying. Verse 
7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So there is the picture of the Christian walking in the light, but still being cleansed by the blood of Christ from ongoing sin. Verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. There's a balancing statement. John saying there is a changed life, but there's still, you don't want to deceive yourself and say you don't have any sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A favorite verse often that talks about that we are cleansed daily by Christ and we've been justified once and for all, but like the disciples, we have to have our feet washed. And then finally, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So there's that, there are these wonderful counterbalancing statements of a right theology here. But Christians are people who have been made alive in Jesus and that new life shows up in our lives, but we still struggle with sin. And so going back to chapter 5, verse 18, our first point, here in this context, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We find this connecting thought now in the second half of the verse, but he who was born of God protects him. That's a reference to Jesus Christ using the language of the first half of the verse. Jesus was born of God in the sense he came in the flesh. He was incarnate. He who was born of God protects him, Christians, and the evil one does not touch him. It's in this context of the Christian's struggle with remaining sin that we find this precious promise that Jesus Christ protects us. Jesus Christ keeps us so that the devil doesn't touch us doesn't mean not, doesn't attack us at all or anything like that. No, one of Satan's common attacks is in the realm of our remaining sin. We talk regularly, you hear the phrase, the world, the flesh, and the devil, the three arenas of the Christian's warfare. And these often work in conjunction with one another. And in this verse, we're thinking about Satan working on ruining us because he works on our remaining sin. What does it mean for the evil one not to touch the believer. It means not to harm, but especially not to harm eternally, not to harm ultimately, finally, and fully, not to be able to derail the one born of God from finally persevering in faith and entering into glory when we die or when the Lord comes. It means that our God keeps us through this lifelong battle of temptation in which Satan attacks us and wars against us. And in fact, in Ephesians 6, verse 16, where that beautiful description of the armor of God, we find that we war against Satan's schemes. He's scheming against us. We take the shield of faith and use it regularly against Satan's flaming darts, his fiery arrows. I take those flaming darts to mean the ways that Satan is able to attack the Christian by working on our remaining sins. He shoots his fiery arrow, 
He inflames and tempts our wrong desires, our wrong thinking, our attitudes, and he works on those areas. That's common for how Satan attacks us. And so we pray in the Lord's Prayer that familiar line, deliver us from evil. More literally, deliver us from the evil one. And we read verses like 1 Peter 4, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. We think about how Jesus warned Peter about falling into sin, warning the disciples about the fact that they would deny him, that they would abandon him. And we read what he says to Simon in Luke twenty-two thirty-one. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. There's the summary of Satan's attack in a very metaphorical way. He wants to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Jesus says, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So it wasn't that Satan couldn't attack Peter, but even in the midst of and through this satanic attack, Jesus, the one who keeps his people, was keeping Peter sovereignly so that he might be restored. We see that he is restored, and he turns and strengthens his brothers. That's the promise and the command Jesus gives him. Notice that with his example, we see that God's promise to keep us and to protect us from Satan's attack does not mean that we never stumble or that we never fall. Peter certainly fell into serious sin, but it does mean that we don't fall finally. We don't fall ultimately. Those who are born of God do not fall away. They persevere. Yes, we still sin, but we have a different relationship with sin. We are never content with our sin. We are mourning and grieving our sin. Dr. Rogers talked about the prayer of confession last week from Psalm 32 and how even as we are confessing our sin, we are seeking to have a mindset of despising our sin and having the mind of God about our sin. We are always coming back to repentance and fighting remaining sin in the power of the Spirit with the Word of God and with the fellowship of the church of God. This is our battle with remaining sin. Let's just stop and think about this first point. Think of the comfort and encouragement of this truth. Jesus keeps his people in their struggle with sin and Satan. Do you feel weak? That shouldn't surprise you. We are weak. We are all weak. Jesus alone is our strength. And we often really don't stop to think about that. He is the captain of our faith. He strengthens us. He lifts us up. He enables us to stand. He gives us the power to continue in the fight against remaining sin and against temptation. He shields us from Satan's attacks so that even though we may stumble and some of those fiery darts may embed in our hearts, we do not ultimately fall. It's as if we are on this battlefield. And we look across the battlefield to the other side and we see Satan the general marshalling all his demonic hosts against us in the spiritual warfare. 
And we would stand there and think, what kind of chance do we have? He is a master at his task. He is more powerful than we are. But then the camera angle backs up and we see the whole battlefield is in the palm of Jesus Christ's hand. And he keeps us and he shields us to the degree that he needs to shield us. And, and whatever fiery dart he allows through, he does so for our good and for our growth in faith, our testing. That's the truth being conveyed here. Jesus keeps us. Secondly, he keeps us in our battle with the world and Satan. Verse 19, notice the shift here. We know that we are from God. In some translations have it, we know that we are children of God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus Christ keeps us in our battle with the world. The whole world is portrayed here as lying under the power and control of the evil one. The world is in Satan's grip, so to speak. It's, it pictures it there almost as just lying there as if it quietly is subject to Satan and his power. But by contrast, Christians are from God. They belong to God. They're children of God. Reminds me of Ephesians 2, verse 2, where Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of this world. There's the mention of world. You, you know, before you come to Christ, you're just caught up in the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. There's this conjunction of the world under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. What colorful language Paul uses there. Think about that alliance, as it were. Think of John in the evil world of his time as he writes these words. Here he is, the last surviving apostle, probably in his 80s as he writes this. And all the other 11 original apostles have been martyred now. Think of that. These were John's very close friends. They had spent three years together with Jesus, being mentored and discipled and taught and loved. It was, it's like those experiences of the World War II veterans who fought in the war, and 70 years after the fact, there's this closeness with their brothers who fought with them. And now John's the last one alive. And he's soon to be exiled, we know, from the book of Revelation. He'll soon be exiled to the island of Patmos. And I've looked online at the pictures of the supposedly the cave of the Apostle John where he, he lived. Talk about the opposition and hostility of the world. John knew, certainly knew, something of the opposition of the world. Now, we know that ultimately it is God who rules over all the world in every detail of it. The Psalms tell us that the, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the earth and all who dwell in it. Many scriptures speak about God ruling this world, and certainly Satan's, it, Satan's activity is totally subject to the sovereignty of our God. But don't we feel very sharply that we live in the midst of an evil world that is always pressing upon us. Yes, with physical sufferings, with calamities, with problems, but also inwardly with the pressure of the world on Christians to squeeze us into the mindset of the world. The book of Revelation 
shows us the two main ways that the world opposes Christians. There are two major thematic elements there when it talks about the world. And the one is the figure of the great prostitute, Babylon, with all her wealth, with all her seduction. Babylon, the seductive power of the world. And that is probably the primary experience of the Christians in the West, the seductive nature of the world, all the world's glitter and allure, all the world's idolatries, all the world's wealth and success and power and temptation. This is what we feel in the West. It's so dangerous. It's so subtle. Often, we do not even realize how desensitized we are to the sinful nature of this world. We're just used to it. No wonder John can write about the world and say, do not love the world, chapter 2, verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he summarizes it this way, three familiar phrases, I'm sure you've heard them. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, and the world is passing away. There's a summary for us of the nature of this battle. But the other figure from Revelation is the figure of the beast, the persecuting power of the beast. Satan stands on the seashore and calls forth this beast from the sea, and he comes out, and this beast oppresses the people of God and kills them, and all of these things. The persecuting power of the state, which, again, in the West, we have not experienced for many years in its severity, but it's really the more typical nature of what the church has experienced throughout the age. Many Christians even today are facing that beastly power of the world, certainly in North Korea, but also in China, in the Middle East, in various nations. I was reading the other week, the historic Christian community in Yemen is almost now completely eradicated. A community that's been there for over a thousand years. It shows the persecuting power of the beast. And these are the twin powers of the world and under Satan's power, we would say, how we must believe that we would not stand if it were not for the keeping power of Jesus Christ. I like the way Jesus prays in John 17, verse 15. He prays to his father, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Christians are in the world, but they are not to be of the world. Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But then he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He's saying, Christians are really not of the world. They belong to me. But Jesus knows, and he prays for Christians to be sanctified in the midst of an ungodly world. Jesus keeps us in the midst of a hostile, seductive, sometimes oppressive and persecuting world. Do not be surprised by the hostility of the world. Do not be desensitized by the allure of the world. But in the midst of that battle, remember and continue to trust that Jesus, your Savior, keeps you. Number three. Jesus keeps us by the work he has done and by our union with him. This goes to how we persevere, how 
the Lord does this. Jesus keeps us by the work he has done and by our unbreakable union with him. Verse 20. Look at the elements of this verse. And we know that the Son of God has come. There's another allusion to the incarnation. Jesus came in history. The God-man was born as a baby. And he has given us understanding. That's a reference to conversion. It's like 2 Corinthians 4, 6. The light of the gospel has shined into our heart to give us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He's given us understanding. We have come to see who Jesus Christ is. We have bowed before him. We have given him our lives. We have repented of our sin. We now belong to him. And then the apostle writes, so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. There are two main elements that come out in this work here. One is the work of Christ to bring us to salvation. Jesus came. He lived. He fulfilled the law. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended. He intercedes for us. He has completed the work of salvation. Thanks be to God. And then our part in it, our continuing union with him so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true. Being in him highlights our union with Christ. The New Testament is full of that phrase. Our union with Christ by which all the benefits and blessings of salvation flow to us, are given to us, and we're sustained by this living union with our Savior. In other words, Jesus has done it all. The work of salvation is complete. You see what a tremendous encouragement this is. After reading verse 18 and verse 19, this evil world, the continuing battle with sin, verse 20 shows us how God keeps us. This certainty of assurance that this gives us, even in the face of sin and Satan and the world. And the Apostle Paul places special emphasis on the fact that God is true, that you may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true. He is the true God and eternal life. In the face of your doubts, in the midst of your struggles, when you're trying to understand what is true, remember God is true. Have you come to trust in the God who is true? We hear a lot about fake news. Well, the gospel is not fake news. Thanks be to God. The gospel is true. The word of God is true. And the only certainty in this life comes from knowing the God who is true. And so I ask you, if you're sitting here this morning, have you fled from the storm of really the judgment of God, the righteous and holy judgment of God on sin, which we all deserve Have you fled by taking refuge in the supreme shelter, Jesus Christ, who came to give us refuge, the one who came and bore the penalty, who bore the storm of the wrath of God for our sin? Have you placed your trust in him? Have you turned from sin and turned to Jesus Christ so that you may be kept by God eternally? Well, that brings us to our last point, number four. God's keeping power motivates us to press on in the struggle. God's keeping power that we've seen here motivates us, it moves us 
to persevere in faith and in holiness and in love, knowing that Jesus keeps us, enables us, and motivates us to press on in the battle. Verse 21 has this exhortation. Interesting way to conclude the book. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The disciples of John's day were immersed in a culture of idolatry, different from the idols of our day maybe, in many ways the same, but still an idolatrous world. The power to more and more turn away from the idols of this world comes from our new life in Christ, our new identity in Christ. But notice, this is a command. This is an exhortation. It calls for effort. It calls for strenuous effort. Yes, by the power of the Spirit. Yes, with our lives centered on Christ. But the believer is not passive in this battle, in this fight. We are not to be complacent. We do not somehow float above the idolatries of this world. Oh, don't we wish that were the case, that we could just float over all the idolatries and not be troubled by them. No, we war against them. We fight them. We turn away from them in the power of the Spirit. God's keeping power strengthens us to continue to fight the influence of the world and continue to fight sin and Satan himself. Hasn't it been interesting to see all the news about people preparing for the hurricane? And really, you hear their interviews, and you see that it really brings into sharp focus what's important in life. You're realizing you may lose everything you have in this life, but your loved ones, you're concerned about them. It just brings into stark contrast what's important. What can be more important than having a relationship to the living God and knowing him eternally, to having eternal life. It makes our taste for this world's idols turn to nothing. Many of you know our son and his family live in the Tampa area. I'm sure lots of you have people or relatives you know who live in harm's way right now, but we got a call from him Friday evening, and he said, I set my alarm early Friday morning for 2 a.m. to check the track of the storm. And I got up and saw the track, and it had turned west. Tampa was in the sights. And I woke up Lauren and said, let's pack and wake the boys, their little boys, and let's go. So 4 a.m. Friday morning, they started to drive north. And after 12 hours of driving secondary roads, it would have taken them about eight hours normally, but they got to Mobile, Alabama, out of the cone. And we were so happy to hear that. Think of the storm of the judgment of God. All of the disasters of this world, as mysterious they are, and we don't want to make one-to-one correspondence about, is there, are these people more sinful than others? Jesus says, don't do that. When the disaster, when he referred to the tower collapsing on people, he said, unless you repent, you also will perish. No, these are four warnings of the final judgment. Scripture makes that clear. We need to evacuate have you fled to refuge for Jesus, to Jesus Christ? Is your life hidden with him through the gospel? Let us pray. Father, we belong to you and we thank you that does not depend on us for who could stand. Thank you that you have done the work and that you promised to complete it 
that it's as good as done. We long and look forward to glory when we will see you face to face. But Lord, until that day, give us grace to love you, to trust you, to serve you, to walk with you, and to not give up. Help us to take great assurance and comfort from your keeping power. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.